You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today I am joined by Drs. Kelly Tanner and Lisa Juckett. Dr. Lisa Juckett is an instructor of occupational therapy at Ohio State University, or I guess I should say the Ohio State University. Dr. Kelly Tanner is a clinical researcher at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Both are currently working with the American Occupational Therapy Association Evidence-Based Practice Team to develop the Knowledge Translation Toolkit. I would venture to say that most occupational therapy practitioners are familiar with evidence-based practice or have at least heard the term and how important it is to our profession. But I want to start by asking you, Dr. Juckett, how would you define knowledge translation and how does it tie into evidence-based practice? Sure, Matt. Um, and, and first off, just uh, thank you for, for letting myself and Dr. Tanner be here today. And I would totally agree that, yes, practitioners, for the, um, the large part, are familiar with, with evidence-based practice. And we do know from the literature that practitioners want to, to implement evidence-based practice and provide the best care possible to their, to their client populations. In terms of, of knowledge translation, there's been a lot of different definitions that have floated around uh, the knowledge translation world, the rehab world. And so I like to kind of use a, a combination of definitions when I uh, describe knowledge translation. And I view it as the dynamic process of synthesizing um, and applying evidence in real world practice settings, of course, with the ultimate goal of improving health or, or larger healthcare systems and how those systems operate. And so I think that because knowledge translation is such a complex process that involves constant collaboration between researchers and and users, or in this case, OT practitioners as the users, because it's a complex process, uh, there's there's not that clean definition that we'd like to see. And it's an ongoing process that is always under uh, undergoing revisions. So it's iterative, it's complex, and it's dynamic. Um, But when done well, Knowledge translation does lead to that uh, increased uptake of using evidence in practice. Awesome. So the end goal of knowledge translation seems to be clearly defined, but getting to that goal sounds like it can take a lot of different routes. And I wanted to ask each of you how you became interested in knowledge translation. I'm happy to get started. Um, I have a pretty unique role at Nationwide Children's Hospital in that I'm a researcher embedded in a clinical department of a hospital. And we are very lucky to have a very strong evidence-based practice and research program at our hospital. And so I've been able to do a lot of work with our evidence-based practice coordinators and really focusing on getting into the literature and making good recommendations for practice. But something that we realized over the years is that often that process kind of stopped in that recommendations phase. So we started to look into ways to move from just looking at the literature and making recommendations to actually facilitating the implementation of those recommendations and then keeping track of our progress on implementing those uh, recommendations from the literature. So that really led me to learn more about knowledge translation and implementation science um, and to work with this group at the American Occupational Therapy Association to come up with some more global strategies that can help practitioners with this process. And kind of to, uh, I guess, piggyback off of... um what, what Dr. 
Tanner was speaking to is that element of, of clinical practice. So in Dr. Tanner's role, she's you know, heavily involved in clinical care, um, whereas you know, some, some research might be a little bit more far removed from what actually happens in practice. And so I, I think that my interest in knowledge translation stems from my own experience in clinical practice, primarily in um, inpatient adult physical rehab. And you know, I, I can think of several instances where I wanted to implement some sort of evidence-based uh, treatment or, or particularly evidence-based um, uh, outcome measures yet faced several challenges of, of my own that really limited the extent to which I could use that, that outcome measure, that treatment in practice. I can remember um, uh, in particular a, a, a certain cognitive assessment that I wanted to use that you know, was available for free online, which was great because that, that sometimes is not the case with outcome measures. Um, so it was available online for free, downloaded all the materials online for free, um, had to find or locate all the materials though that I needed, the equipment I needed to uh, implement the assessment. And that in and of itself was a little bit of a barrier. I wasn't able to uh, gather all the materials I needed, or even when I did gather them, somehow they got lost or they got damaged. And so it ended up being all this, <laughs> all this well-intentioned uh, time and effort put towards implementing this outcome measure. Um, but, but at the end of the day, there were just a couple of barriers that got in the way of uh, sustainably implementing that, that measure over the course of time. And so facing those barriers firsthand then led to kind of a more um, a passionate um, and current interest in knowledge translation. Well, thank you both for sharing those experiences that led you to begin studying knowledge translation. I think a lot of our listeners are going to be able to relate to your experience. Um, and I know me personally, I became fascinated with knowledge translation um, while completing my education um, at Washington University in St. Louis. And I have had somewhat of a sneak peek at the knowledge translation toolkit that you're working on, and I think it's amazing. So I'd love to ask you both, what really is this knowledge translation toolkit? Dr. Tammy, you want to get us started? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think of the knowledge translation toolkit as kind of a set of tools that are complementary to each other, which we hope will support a practitioner moving through these stages of knowledge translation that we've looked in the literature and identified. Um, so we hope that it will kind of start out with tools that if you're just getting started with evidence-based practice and changing your own practice, you can kind of start there and then progress through some stages uh, to where you're eventually working on sharing the knowledge that you've gained with others outside of your work setting. And the American Occupational Therapy Association has had a, a great evidence-based practice program and has done a lot of knowledge translation efforts. So we're really just trying to pull together a lot of the resources that we already have, as well as adding a number of new resources that will be available to practitioners to use in their daily work. And I'll, I'll just add, add on to that, that I think what's really unique and innovative about this knowledge translation toolkit is that oftentimes we will see similar toolkits or packages that are out there that are designed to help practitioners implement evidence in practice that's specific to a certain client population. So maybe we'll see toolkits that are dedicated to the spinal cord injury population or cerebral palsy or autism, when um, in fact the, the toolkit that AOTA is developing is, is transcends all 
uh, client populations and ideally will transcend all practice settings so that somebody that works in physical rehabilitation can pick up the toolkit, find something useful out of it. Same with somebody that might work in more of a child and youth settings. So um, that's that's our goal. Uh, granted, we, we know that the knowledge translation toolkit is still in development, but that is our, our overarching long-term goal is that anybody can pick it up and find it useful. Yeah, Lisa, I wanted to to mention also a shout out to, we have, you know, we're working with the AOTA evidence-based practice team, but we also have other practitioners around the country that we're working with that come from a variety of settings from private practice to hospital-based settings and also a variety of practice areas, um, including pediatrics and older adults and adult um, rehab. So we're really trying to leverage the knowledge of our team, and also including folks from a variety of practice settings as we go through a review process with all of these tools we're creating. That's a great point, because I think that that diversity and who we have on our team really adds a lot to um, the applicability and the uh, utility of the toolkit down the road, you know, not just representing different backgrounds um, and and practice settings, but also representing different geographic areas uh, of the country as well. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. This toolkit sounds like it's going to be amazing and be able to help practitioners improve their daily practice, but also improve our field as a whole in becoming more evidence-based. Um, I know the evidence-based practice team at AOTA also wanted us to emphasize that the toolkit is something that is constantly being evaluated and new materials are going to be continue to be added as needed throughout the development and release of the toolkit. And I know the goal of the Knowledge Translation Toolkit is to help practitioners integrate evidence into practice. I wanted to ask both of you, Lisa and Kelly, what are some strategies practitioners can use to begin to increase the uptake of evidence into their practice? That's the million-dollar question, Matt, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I wish that there was a million-dollar answer that could um, you know, be used, a blanket statement that could be used by all practitioners. But I think, and we can get into this you know, maybe as we talk about how the toolkit was developed, but um, I think that, that strategies that practitioners might find useful are really going to be most effective if practitioners are first able to understand what their what their actual needs are. So whether that's individually uh, as a practitioner sitting back and thinking to yourself, okay, well, what do I know about evidence-based practice? And if the term evidence-based practice is even intimidating or confusing, then maybe that practitioner or group of practitioners can sit down with some of the resources that we've developed for this toolkit that lay out really clear-cut definitions of evidence-based practice, a little bit about um, EDP history, where it came from, what its purpose is, um, and then also our other tools describe details as to how you might um, go about reading a research article, locating a research article, I should start there, locating a research article, deciding whether or not one is um, worthy of, of your interest, and then, of course, then figuring out whether or not the research presented in that article uh, should, in fact, be implemented into practice. And so I, I wish I had a, a 
clearer answer for you, but I think that that's very reflective of knowledge translation. It's complex, it's dynamic, it's not a clear process, um, but I, I often find that, that step one is just taking the time to understand well, what are the needs of your clinic, your organization, or of yourself, and then selecting strategies based on those, on those needs. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point, Lisa. And I think what you're kind of saying is to start small. Um, you don't have to dive in all at once and totally revolutionize everything you're doing. Uh, it could be as small of a step as, you know, one practitioner picking up a peer-reviewed article and reading it and figuring out if it relates to their practice. And if so, what are some small changes that they can make to incorporate that information into their work? And what I've seen is that once people really get into this process, it can kind of snowball from there. So maybe that one practitioner decides, you know, they read a really great article and they want to host a journal club with their colleagues. So that can be a great way to talk about evidence together and come up with some more general recommendations for your workplace. Um, I know that some people are working kind of as solo practitioners and Communoty has some great resources if you're looking for a community of people to discuss evidence with. For example, I saw that some of the special interest sections have been hosting virtual journal clubs lately. So that could be another outlet to just get into the evidence a little bit and start sharing your insights with other people that are interested in discussing it. And, and Kelly, as um you know, thank you for bringing up uh, that, that journal club toolkit as an example. Um, I think that, that gives us an opportunity to also mention, Matt, to your point about how, yes, tools are constantly being evaluated. New materials are, are going to be added to this toolkit as needed. One already kind of in existence tool that is going to be part of this larger knowledge translation toolkit is the uh, journal club toolkit that AOTA has already developed for practitioners. It currently is undergoing some revisions of its own. And so I think that that just, that that one example speaks to how AOTA is really committed to constantly in an iterative process, updating or revising the tools that are part of this toolkit to reflect the needs of practitioners. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We we have a, an interview with uh, Dr. Broca Stern uh, specifically on the Journal Club Toolkit. Great. And it, it does sound like it's going to be a huge addition to the, the KT Toolkit. I love what you both said about how practitioners need not feel intimidated by this process. You don't have to be an expert at all these tools um, and can start small. And I wanted to ask if we could maybe go through some of the tools or highlight some of them. And, and what are the, the tools currently included in this kit um, that will help practitioners to achieve their knowledge translation goals? So as I um, kind of alluded to earlier, we've really identified a range of tools that span this knowledge translation spectrum, shall we say. So first, starting with just looking at one practitioner changing their own practice, um, one example of a resource that would fit under that category would be a resource that shows you how to search for articles and find articles that are applicable to your practice. Um, Another set of tools are really focused on helping your entire work setting change your practice. So once a single practitioner has gotten really interested in evidence-based practice, we have a set of tools that go along with sharing that information with the rest of their work setting and really creating a culture change. One example of a tool in that section is a checklist Uh, for speaking with a manager or administrator about implementing an evidence-based practice. 
And then another category that we have is really figuring out how to share that knowledge with the rest of the world outside of your work setting. Um, and so an example of a tool in that section is uh, a guide for how to create a community of practice. How can you start a conversation with others that are in your community or even outside your community that you can really create some lasting and meaningful change around you? Awesome. Thank you for highlighting some of those tools. Would you say, are these checklists and guidelines, how detailed are they? Do they give very specific step-by-step instructions? Are they made more broadly so practitioners can apply them to their own setting? Or how would you describe them in that sense? So we really tried to strike a balance between making resources that are general enough that they're going to apply to a wide variety of settings and practice areas, but also keeping it very practical and pragmatic so that you can look at this tool and work through it and make a change. So we have focused a lot on doing checklists, resource guides, quick bulleted ways that you can have actionable steps to create change in your work setting and outside your work setting. Um, And we're trying to balance that with specific examples from practice settings so that we can highlight how changes can be made. And we're really making an effort to gather those examples from multiple different practice areas. And I think that that will really help practitioners uh, conceptualize how these recommendations, how these guides, how these um, one-page tip sheets can really be uh, brought to life in the practice setting through these through these case examples that represent the different practice settings. So that again is another benefit of having such a diverse group of individuals on our on our team on our knowledge um, translation toolkit team is to be able to provide those examples that hopefully resonate with um, with the users of this toolkit down the road. Uh, I I love that, and I can really tell that the tools you are developing, you're really making them so they can be as easy to use for practitioners and as effective um, as possible for practitioners. But as I'm sure we're all aware, knowledge translation isn't always easy. Um, What are some of the barriers that practitioners face when attempting to implement evidence into their practice? I'll say the the most common two are the forefront of my mind that are not going to be a surprise to anybody, and that would be time and money, Um, right? People don't have the time necessarily to find evidence appraise it, figure it out if it's worthy of being implemented and learn how to use a new intervention or a new outcome measure. All that, that time is, is precious. And um, oftentimes practitioners are not provided with you know, protected time or time allocated to doing those types of EBP uh, activities. Some, some organizations, some healthcare systems are able to provide that to their practitioners, which is wonderful, um, but that's not always the case. And, and so time to uh, implement and identify evidence, money to actually you know, afford the equipment or materials that are needed, money to buy out that time if protected time is provided to practitioners, um, money to uh, conduct a, an in-service or a training with an actual expert in a certain, in a certain area or an expert uh, in implementing an intervention. Peer support we also find is a, is a barrier, uh, as well as administrative support. Not having that, that strong culture for using evidence in practice can be a barrier. And uh, I think we'll get into this in a, in a little bit, but these barriers were important for us uh, to identify and understand. There's tons of literature out there that speak to these knowledge translation barriers, but we wanted to understand more about the barriers that were afflicting the, the OT practitioner population. And we we uncovered a few of those barriers through a survey that we sent out to uh, practitioners, got a decent response of about 800 
participants and in one common barrier and, and Kelly maybe you can speak to this as well was uh, how practitioners were somewhat maybe frustrated with the word um, with how difficult it was to take evidence and then adapt it for their own patient populations or, or tweak it in a way that so it was feasible to implement in practice. Um, research articles often examine the outcomes of patient populations that you know meet really stringent inclusion exclusion criteria but in the real world patient populations, client populations are often um, have complex backgrounds and medical histories and might not fit into the same type of inclusion exclusion criteria um, upon which a research study was based. And so we're, we're trying to develop uh, and generate some resources that, that do represent kind of how you can tailor evidence and interventions for, for client populations that represent a more kind of diverse set of backgrounds. Yeah, Lisa, that's a great point. That is something that we hear often from practitioners is, you know, they find the articles on a specific intervention for a specific population. Um, and so let's just take, for example, I'm in the pediatric world. So looking at cerebral palsy and uh, one evidence-based intervention is constraint-induced movement therapy. And sometimes the randomized trials that have been conducted on constraint-induced movement therapy, which have shown it to be uh, very effective, have had very strict inclusion criteria. So a therapist who, or a practitioner who picks up that body of evidence or even a specific study might look at it and think, you know, this, this looks great in theory, but the child that I'm seeing has a lot of comorbidities, a lot of other things going on, and doesn't exactly match the strict inclusion criteria that are necessary for a randomized control child trial to show that initial efficacy of the intervention. So there's kind of a leap that we have to make um, and a judgment call to figure out, you know, given the constraints of this evidence, does it match closely enough to the child that I'm seeing here in real life in the clinic? Or what other considerations do I have to um, look at in order to adapt this intervention for my specific patient that has, you know, all these other things going on. And then thinking about, you know, is this the same, is this still going to have the same level of effectiveness with this particular patient? So it, it is definitely a challenge and something that we're hoping to help practitioners think through in a, in a more systematic way. Absolutely. And that's an excellent example, Kelly and Lisa, you were touching on it too. How specifically or in what other ways can the knowledge translation toolkit acknowledge and overcome um, these barriers or help practitioners to acknowledge and overcome them? We're proud to say that our toolkit is evidence-informed in the sense that it's it's backed by some uh, a pretty rig rigorous process of uh, identifying barriers and then matching those barriers to potential strategies that can support the, the translation of knowledge into practice. Um, so I, I'll I won't get into too much detail here um, because we've we've written up our process of developing this toolkit and hopefully we'll be able to to publish and disseminate this process to others that are interested in it. But as I mentioned before, we were interested in identifying what barriers were really afflicting the OT community, what barriers to using evidence in practice, and conducted that survey of about 800 respondents who shared with us some major barriers of using evidence in practice. Um, we were able to use a, a qualitative coding process to then categorize there was those barriers based on uh, a framework that was drawn from the implementation science field. 
Um, and then there's been some work around this framework, the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research, um, to help practitioners and researchers alike then take barriers and then link those barriers to potential strategies that, um, that can, as you said, overcome barriers uh, to evidence implementation. And so we, we tried to replicate that same process, identifying barriers and then linking barriers to strategies. So that way we can say um, with confidence that our toolkit really is reflective of the needs of practitioners, the needs that were identified on this, on this survey, the survey that we would say is representative of, um, of the OT population. So it, there's a lot of toolkits out there that are have mixed effectiveness because those toolkits don't take the time to really understand the needs of their of their target audience. But uh, I think we're, we're proud to say that we we were able to do so. Well, I for one am all in on the on the toolkit. Um, it's something I'm definitely planning on using as I start my career as a practitioner. Where and how can listeners and practitioners access the Knowledge Translation Toolkit? So it's currently in development and is not yet available for wide use. When it is finished, it will be available on the AOTA website, hopefully in a very uh, easy to find location. There are some resources available right now on the AOTA website if you're interested in getting started before the toolkit is out there. We've already mentioned one great one, the Journal Club Toolkit, and those can be found in the evidence-based practice section of the website. Awesome. Thank you for for pointing out that spot. I know we may have touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to dive a little deeper into what steps a, a practitioner needs to take when using the toolkit and how they can they can go through it. So let's say once a practitioner identifies an evidence-based intervention um, that they want to incorporate into their practice, how do they use the toolkit to make it happen? Is it more of a linear progression through all the different tools or can they kind of pick and choose uh, what's best for their specific intervention or setting? Kind of going back to what we started talking about what, and that was um, you know, really taking the time to understand the needs of either you yourself as an individual or uh, the needs of your actual organization or your, or your clinic. Um, and so if you find something that you really want to implement because you feel like it's going to address the needs of your, of your clients in an effective manner and it's supported by, um, by rigorous research, you want to implement it, then that's when you take the time and you figure out, hey, what do I, what do I need? What are, the, what are the barriers that exist? And by identifying those barriers that are specific to you and your clinic, then you can go about selecting strategies and, and tools that um, that we've developed in that in that toolkit itself. And we'll we're as part of this toolkit, we'll be able to walk practitioners through that process of identifying barriers and then selecting the most appropriate the, uh, strategy to support knowledge translation. Awesome, thank you, Lisa. Anything to add, um, Kelly, on that one? Yeah, I would just add that I think we're going to even hope to start kind of the step before um, to even help practitioners identify those evidence-based interventions. So if you kind of aren't really sure where to start, we'll have a set of tools that are just about getting started with evidence-based practice um, so that everybody can enter into this this knowledge translation toolkit and find something that fits where they are in their evidence-based practice journey. And one thing that I'll, I'll mention um, that I wanted to bring up before, and it, it just slipped to my mind, is that, um, yes, we, we know that the toolkit itself will constantly be undergoing um, revisions, but we also plan to develop a strategy for then measuring 
the effectiveness of the toolkit itself. And while that plan is still in development, I think it's worth saying that we are really interested in not just developing this toolkit, but making sure that it's A, being used, and B, effective for, for changing practice. Because there's no point in, in developing a toolkit that's not going to be used, and there's certainly no point in developing, developing a toolkit that's not going to have an impact on the OT profession. So that is on our radar, certainly. We've just, uh, we, have, we need to develop the toolkit first and then, and then figure out a plan for measuring its effectiveness. I'm, I'm glad that's a goal that you have. And it seems like an excellent example. You're going to be using knowledge translation to improve the knowledge translation toolkit. Could either of you or both of you share an example or a story of how you or someone you know has used the knowledge translation toolkit or one of its tools to achieve a positive outcome? Sure, I can give an example. Uh, One tool that I mentioned earlier was a resource or checklist for creating a local community of practice. Uh, And I have done so here in Columbus, Ohio, with a group that we have called the Central Ohio Pediatric OT Interest Group. And so how we got started with this, it was actually modeled on a similar group that our physical therapy colleagues had. Uh, But basically, we get together uh, when we're able to at local libraries. Right now, we've been meeting virtually for the past year, and we provide opportunities for continuing education. We pull speakers from our local academic institution, the Ohio State University, um, the hospital where I work, Nationwide Children's Hospital. And we also really make an effort to highlight practitioners in the community um, that might be working in in school settings or other clinics to really share the knowledge that we have on particular topics. So we get together regularly once a month, um, about six times a year, three times in the spring and three times in the fall. And practitioners can expect to join and hear about an interesting topic, as well as have some time to just network with each other. And uh, I've heard stories of practitioners making good connections with uh, folks in other local school districts or in other clinics that they've been able to share practical information with. Um, And so this has been a great way for us to really build a community of occupational therapy practitioners that are interested in talking about these pediatric focused topics and also just connecting with each other. So that's one example of a tool that we've built that will hopefully help others be able to create similar communities of practice where they're living. That's a a wonderful example, Kelly. And it it really... I think a lot of people, when they hear research, they immediately begin thinking about, you know, statistics and methodology and analysis. Um, But adding knowledge translation into it really emphasizes community and working with other people um, to improve practice, uh, which is something that I think a lot of OT practitioners will be um, drawn to do. Um, Lisa, is there a success story that that you would also like to share? Sure. And uh, some of the work that I do is, does not involve solely OT practitioners, but instead kind of an interdisciplinary group of, of clinicians. Um, and so I can think of one example in the community-based setting where an organization wanted to implement an evidence-based screening tool um, to identify frailty uh, among their clients. And so it was a brand new tool that was um, totally unfamiliar to 
to the clinicians in this organization. And so we used a combination of implementation strategies and knowledge translation strategies to get that, that screening tool into practice. And so we conducted initial and then follow-up trainings, all of which were delivered virtually. Um, and we know that the one-off singular educational session or in-service, those types of in-services aren't really all that effective for creating and sustaining practice change, hence the benefit of conducting initial education sessions followed by the the follow-up education sessions afterwards. And so that, on top of changing the way in which their um, electronic health record was structured so that they were easily able to document findings from that screening tool, and then appointing uh, an evidence-based leader or a screening tool champion in the organization that clinicians could turn to if there were questions about how to use the tool or how to interpret its findings, that was that was helpful. Put, putting that onus on an actual clinician that was in-house, we found was really effective as opposed to having to reach back out to um, myself being the, the research facilitator or, or even the developer of the screening tool. It's much easier to reach out to somebody in-house as opposed to an external entity. Yeah, Lisa, I want to highlight uh, one of the concepts you're talking about is really uh, becoming or creating an EVP champion. And so we do have a specific resource that talks about how you can become an EVP champion in your work setting um, with varying levels of support, whether it's just you saying I'm now the EVP champion or if you're going to make it, uh, try to make it into an official role in your work setting. Yeah, and Kelly, I know that you can speak to, to this as well, but in, in my experience working with the clinicians in this one example, there really is that point of pride that comes with being that champion or being that expert, even if it is just in a, a small niche area. Um, that's still an area of expertise that, that no one else has so in your in your area or in your practice setting. And so that in and of itself can, can kind of bolster your success of using evidence, whether it's an intervention or an assessment or a screening tool uh, in practice. Very much so. And I think I'm constantly learning from clinicians and EBP champions in my work, uh, things that I never would have thought of. So they often point out barriers that I never would have recognized or strengths that I would have maybe not recognized. They're able to kind of pull them out and help us identify those barriers and strengths so that we can really move forward more effectively, uh, much more effectively than if I were just coming up with something and, and trying to tell people to do it. I love that. Everybody wants to be a champion. Yeah. Um, so go to AOTA.org, find the Knowledge Translation Toolkit when it's published, and all of us can become EBP champions. I love that so much. Uh, where can listeners find more information related to the toolkit, or are there any other, I guess, resources you'd recommend listeners seek out if they want to learn more about knowledge translation? So we... Um have been fortunate in the sense that we were able to provide a a virtual uh, webinar during the the virtual conference series for the AOTA conference this past year, um, I guess back in May of 2020, that described the toolkit and its development process. Um, As I mentioned before, we're um, in the final stages of disseminating the process um, and uh, publishing an article that speaks to the way in which the toolkit was developed and how we plan going forward to hopefully evaluate its effectiveness. Fingers crossed for um, some some format of a presentation for the 2021 conference at AOTA. Um, and uh, I know that just in general, uh, there are some really great and thoughtful uh, evidence-based resources on AOTA's website that can be that can be found on the, the practice tab and specific to different practice areas and, and clinical settings as well. 
And if someone is is really excited for the release of the toolkit, wants to be aware of when it, it finally is is published, uh, what what could a practitioner do to be wary of of when it's available? I would keep an eye out on AOTA's regular communications that you might be receiving by email um, and on social media as well. We'll be sure to get out the, the word in whatever channels we're able to once the toolkit is on the website and ready to use. Okay, perfect. That sounds great. I guess now I just have one final question for you both. I call this the golden nugget segment. And since there's two guests, we get two golden nuggets today. This is great. If you could tell practitioners to do one thing, what would it be? <laughs> I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I would say first, really take the time to understand the needs of uh, your needs individually, as well as the needs of maybe your coworkers or, or your colleagues with which you attempt to uh, implement evidence in a certain practice setting. And you can do that. I, I've seen it done just by simple Surveys that get sent around electronically or on paper, I've seen it in focus groups or, or quick little phone calls or, or Zoom calls with practitioners, even just kind of a, a brown bag lunch type of scenario where we sit down and talk about, well, what do we need to get evidence in, into practice? Um, I think that those conversations are really illuminating and it's in some sense cathartic to hear about the struggles that your colleagues face when maybe you don't have that opportunity and uh, to do so on a regular basis. And if you are um, a sole practitioner, working on your own. Um, and that I would, I would say maybe you can identify those barriers individually or uh, reach out to maybe those uh, communities of practice that, that Kelly alluded to, to find others with similar interests. And so you can share those, those barriers and identify how to overcome those barriers. Uh, I think that my one tip would be just to set a goal to read at least one article, you know, whether it's one article per month, one article per quarter, one article per week, kind of start with what feels right to you. And there's lots of ways to find open access articles these days. Uh, but I would really recommend that practitioners make an effort to get into the literature and just see what's out there and, and the new research that's coming out, because it is exciting to see all the wonderful research that's being done on occupational therapy these days. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those nuggets and thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks so well, much thank you. for having us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.